Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. This morning we're talking about avoiding injury. I want to thank the other preachers who have uh, taught on this topic so far. We've been going through the series of eight months to a better body. Is that what it is? But we've been teaching on this series, and the other preachers have done a fantastic job on their studies. And if you've missed one or two of those, I'd encourage you to go back on our YouTube channel and watch those, uh, or else you'll be missing out. Today's topic is avoiding injury. If you'll allow me to apply a theme passage to our series so far, I would say it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talked about the church, and he used an illustration of the body of a human body. He talked about the foot, the ear, different parts of the body. And he talks about us being made up. Us making up the body. We are different members of the body. And we all have different jobs to do and different parts to play. But we all have one common goal in the body of Christ. In the church. And you know, Paul said here in verse 25 that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. As I was reading this, you know, I thought, what is this word schism? Well, if Paul is using an illustration of a human body, and if you look at the Greek word here for schism, it is schisma, it means a division or a rent or to tear. You know what Paul was preaching? Paul said that there should be no injuries in the body of Christ. Paul was telling the Corinthians to avoid injury. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. One specific injury I want to uh, mention to you is a stress fracture. A stress fracture occurs when bone, typically in the lower extremities, is subjected to repeated mechanical stress that results in microscopic fractures. A stress fracture is a fracture. It is an injury in the human body that will slow you down and it will cause you pain, but it's not extreme. Some people in here have experienced stress fractures before. They start off small. But let me tell you a story about this lady right here. Her name is Stephanie Quinn. She was an athlete. She came from a family of athletes, so naturally she was one herself. She was training for an Ironman race. This is a huge competition. If you don't know what that is, it consists of a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride, and a 26-mile run. I don't know what gives someone the desire to want to do this, but she did, and she trained, and she trained hard for years and years, and she got to the point in her, twa- in her training where she was about to perform a half Ironman. So she was going to do half of a, the full race, and that's the point she had trained up to. But weeks prior to this race, she started experiencing a pain in her hip. But she decided to push through and continue with this race. Race day comes along and she begins to run. Or I guess the first one is a swim. She begins to swim. And she goes through this race and a few miles in she hears a crack and a pop in her hip. I'd be pretty scared. But at this point on she had experienced a pain she said she had never experienced before. And so for the next couple miles of this race, she was dragging her leg behind her. Eventually, she had to quit. She had to give up the race. And she was taken to the emergency room when she had found out that this stress fracture in her hip had turned into an irreversible 
permanent injury in her hip. Now, she was eventually able to start racing again, but she never was able to complete that Ironman that she wanted to because this small injury turned into a big problem, and she was never able to compete at the level she had been training for. We have stress fractures in the body of Christ, don't we? We say things to each other. We do things to one another. We hurt each other's feelings from time to time. It happens. We get our feelings hurt. That's a very real thing. But we've got to stop these problems while they're small. When you're faced with a stress fracture, you can take two different paths. You can either resolve it or you can dissolve it. You can resolve the issue. You can take the proper measures to heal this problem while it's small. You can wear a boot. You can let it rest, whatever that is. Or you can choose to dissolve the problem. You can sweep it under the rug, pretend like it's not there, and even though you feel a pain, you can do the race anyway. But what happens is that stress fracture, when left unresolved, grows and grows until you've got a full-on broken hip and you're dragging your leg behind you. When we hurt feelings, when we say things to our brothers and sisters, we have these stress fractures. we got to fix it. And this concept is sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 15. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This isn't just uh, pursue peace with all people. That's what we ought to do, but it's not just get rid of all this bitterness. Lest any root of bitterness springing up, when this root of bitterness begins to surface from the soil and it just begins to take root, we've got to pull it up before it turns into a big old oak tree. We've got to stop this problem while it's small. And as I was looking into some of these some of these problems, divisions in the church, and I think of stress fractures and conflicts in the body of Christ that we deal with today, I thought of a perfect example. You know, there was a church in the New Testament that had conflict in the body. And that was the Corinthian church that Paul wrote to in, the, in 1 Corinthians. I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Very early on in the chapter, Paul wrote in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. That word divisions is schisma, the same Greek word for there being no schism in the body. He said that there are no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you, this word contentions means some sort of a feud, disagreement, or argument. He's saying he heard that there are contentions among you. There are disagreements. There are arguments. But he's writing so that there be no divisions among you. We've got to stop these conflicts while they're small, while they're still stress fractures, before they turn into straight-up divisions. We don't need that. Now I want to remind you of Proverbs 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Paul continued writing, we see here in verse 3, about these divisions, about these conflicts that they were dealing in the body. And I want you to start to see these patterns 
the root cause of these conflicts in the body, the root causes of these divisions. He said in chapter 3, verse 3, for you are carnal, you are still carnal for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Paul was writing to them saying, you are acting immature, childish, carnal, human. What was going on here? There were these Christians claiming, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. They were divided because they were following mere men. They did not have unity. They didn't understand the concepts that they were supposed to understand. And what did Paul say? Paul told him, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The power came from God. This isn't about us. This isn't about you. This is about God. Verse 9, he said this, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Paul, Paul put them all on the same, on level playing field here. He said, we are fellow workers who all belong to God. We don't belong to these other men. We don't even belong to ourselves. We belong to God. Our focus is wrong when God doesn't take precedence in our life. That's when pride starts to take root. He concluded his thoughts here in verse 23 when he says, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And we got to remember that this morning. And then we see more conflict in the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul wrote, and you are puffed up. That's an interesting word he used there. I want you to note that for later. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he has done this deed might be taken away from among you. What was happening here? This word puffed up talks about pride. It carries that idea. And he's saying that they were puffed up against their brother. What was the problem? What was the sin problem? It was sexual immorality. We had men, they had men in the church taking their father's wives. This was happening in the Corinthian church. And it was caused by their pride because they were puffed up against each other. People thinking they can do whatever they want to do. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where they had struggles with people eating meat offered to idols and people being offended at those people eating meat offered to idols. And he said this in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I want to note two things from this. One, we need to not be so easy to get offended. On judgment-type matters, people have their own opinions. And when it comes to judgment, we can't be offended by our brethren doing things that are lawful for them to do. But on the other hand, we need to be weary... Excuse me, that's not the word I'm looking for. Aware, I guess of our brother's struggles and shortcomings and what could cause them to struggle. Care about your brother's feelings. Care about each other's feelings. We don't need to do things if we know it's going to hurt each other. Those kind of things cause injuries in the body of Christ. And then we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul wrote to them about their idolatry. And he used the Israelites as an example. He said the Israelites worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods. They had idolatry. But this goes deeper than that. 
Because even if the Corinthians weren't worshiping these idols, they were still practicing idolatry. Because let me remind you, when anything takes precedence in our heart over God, it is an idol. And so what can be some idols for us? It could be a sin problem. It could be our pride. Hurt feelings could be an idol. Our hurt feelings could be an idol. And so all of these, these conflicts in the body all had a common theme. It was sin. It was pride. It was unforgiveness. And so I want to look at what Paul's solution to avoiding and repairing injury is. See, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is written as a chiasm. And if you're not familiar with that concept, a chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated back in reverse order. The result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in a passage. Each idea is connected to its reflection by a repeated word, often in a related form. The term chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our letter X. Chiastic pattern is also called ring structure. So put simply... Every uh, uh, chiasm is a style of writing in which everything from the beginning to end has one center point, has one focus, one solution. If you really think about it, the entire Bible is a chiasm. Everything from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, all has one solution, all have one, has one focus, and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, on a much smaller scale, 1 Corinthians is written this same way. Paul uses these different words and ideas and he puts them all together in one part of this book. And this one part of this book carries the solution to these problems. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul wrote to us about love. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about love. And I want to break this down piece by piece and see how these things can apply. And I don't know if it'll be the same for you, but these things, every one of them has convicted me in some way as I've gone through this study. Because I don't love like I should. And I want us to do some self-reflection as we walk through these. Love suffers long. Some translations say love is patient. Well, this isn't the ordinary Greek word that we see in uh, that translates to patience here in 1 Corinthians 13. This means uh, literally, to suffer long. Have you ever been around a brother or a sister in Christ that you just feel like you're suffering when you're around them? It's a real thing. It is. There are people that we feel like make us suffer, but love suffers long. Here's an example. You walk in church on Sunday morning and you see him across the room, or her. I'm going to force myself to go shake their hand, but then I'm going to walk to the other side and I'm going to talk to my friends and be in my own little circle. Is that suffering long? It's not. Love suffers long. When we won't spend time with our brothers and sisters that maybe we just don't like because we don't like them, that's our problem. That's a problem on us, and we're not loving like we should love. And this carries the idea of forgiveness. Internally, we are forgiving them for making us suffer. And so I want you to see that pattern very early on. He said, love is kind. I understand where they came, came up with the English translation of kind, but when you look at this Greek word, is to show oneself useful. That's what this word means. Love shows oneself use, useful. Now, when I think of useful, I think of this tool right here. These are my work keys, 
And there's a, a tool here I carry on my work keys. It's called a home flex. And it opens and closes valves, sometimes for uh, gas, like a gas fireplace, and sometimes for water on industrial-type buildings. In fact, this building right here uh, requires this key to turn on and off the water outside. I'm in the pest control business, and when I go to a house and I'm out of chemical, or if I go to some sort of commercial building and I'm out of chemical and I need to fill the tank up, I need this key. This key is useful. Because if I don't have this key, I can't turn on the water, and then I can't complete the job. This key is exactly what I need, and hopefully there exactly when I need it. And that's what love is. Are you the brother or sister that is useful to the people around us? Useful for the body of Christ? Useful for the work of the ministry? Are you useful? That is love. That's what love looks like. The Corinthians weren't being useful to one another. In fact, they were in lawsuits with one another. I think I forgot to mention that earlier. They were suing each other. They were trying to enforce the law on their brethren. They weren't being useful. But love is useful. Where did I put the clicker? Here it is. Love does not envy. Now, when you think about this, you know, love, does that mean you're not envious of your brothers or sisters? You're not jealous of things they have? Well, I think if you look a little bit deeper into this, this has an interesting meaning. These words can translate in different... This word translates in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it translates as zeal. Sometimes it translates as jealousy or covetousness. So this word carries the idea of a strong feeling of a false sense of ownership. In other words, love does not say, I own you. We have that mindset sometimes, don't we? And that's rooted in pride. We feel like our brothers and sisters owe us something or that we deserve something from them. That's not true. We don't own our brothers and sisters. We are all owned by God, aren't we? Love does not say, I own you. Love is humble. Love is not prideful. Love does not parade itself. When you look at this word parade, um, it translates to, to brag, translates to, to bragging. Now, I think the way we most commonly practice this is with this phrase right here, I told you so. And while we might not verbalize this, we might not say it, maybe we do, sometimes we show I told you so in our actions. This one, this one of the ones that got me. Let's say a brother comes to you asking for your advice or a sister comes to you asking for your advice and you give, them, you give them advice and then they go to make this decision and they don't heed your advice and then you watch this decision blow up in their face and they fall down. Do you go back to them and lift them back up or do you turn up your nose and distance yourself because you should have listened? I know best. That's not love. That's not what Paul was teaching. If we have that kind of attitude, we are injuring the body of Christ. We are hurting one another, not building each other up. we got to love. And love is not puffed up. Notice this word. He used it earlier on in 1 Corinthians about them being puffed up towards one another. <laughs> this is a puffer fish. He's a cute little guy. Some people have them in their, uh, what are those things called? Aquariums. 
They have them in their aquariums. They swim around. They're cute. But in short order, they can look like that. <laughs> That's pretty cool, ain't it? I wish I could do that. You know what? why they puff themselves up? They puff themselves up for two different reasons. To intimidate others and to impress others. That gets you, doesn't it? That gets me. I'll tell you a very real problem. If you're a speaker on a Sunday morning and you walk in with your suit on and you, you got your microphone in the middle, it feels pretty good. Sometimes it feels like you're walking on air. But let me tell you right now, I am a person up here teaching about love who is not very good at loving. That's the reality. And I need to not puff myself up to make myself look like I'm bigger than I am, to feel better than my brothers and sisters, to show myself bigger than my brothers and sisters. That's not right. And I just use the preacher thing as, a, as an illustration, but we do that in so many ways. When you're in here fellowshipping, are you talking about all the good in your life? Are you being transparent with people? Are you letting people in? Because if we're fake, we're tearing down the body of Christ because we're not loving each other. Love does not behave rudely. <laughs> this one, rudely, translates to unseemly or uncomely. It really means out of place. If you go to the grocery store and you go to buy a bundle of bananas, you're not going to pick this brown one. It's out of place. It's uncomely. It's unseemly. You don't want it. When we act a certain way that is out of place and we make our brothers and sisters feel uncomfortable, that is not love. Is your behavior out of place? Here's another personal example. On Wednesday nights, I go out to eat with some of my closest friends. And I enjoy it very much. Wednesday nights after church, we go to Olive Garden together. We go wherever. But I'll get caught up in the camaraderie, and I'll start trying to make people laugh. And do you think it's ordinary for someone to quack like a duck in the middle of Olive Garden? No. In fact, those things can make people uncomfortable. And if we're behaving in a way that make people uncomfortable, that's out of place, we're not loving each other like we should. Paul says, don't be weird. That's what Paul is saying. Don't act in a way that's out of place. That's not love. And we're going to harp on this one. Love does not seek its own. Love does not insist on its own way. Me always gets what me wants. We all have our own opinions. We all have our own desires. We all have our own things that we like, our preferences. And we're not willing to give them up to give other people what they want. It's my way or the highway. That's our attitude. That's our mindset. And that's not right. In fact, this idea is repeated over and over in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Remember those lawsuits we talked about? He said it's an utter failure. You have miserably failed because you're going to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Why can't we just be wrong every once in a while? 
Why can't, when it comes to preferences and opinions, why can't we just give other people what they want on judgment-type issues? Are the pews green or red? Is the stain on the, on the communion table light or dark? Can we take the wrong, or will our pride and ego not let us? Love does not seek its own. Philippians 2 and 3, let nothing be done. Let a few things, let some things, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Do we do things out of our own selfish ambition because we want our way, or are we thinking of our brothers and sisters in Christ as better than us? Let me make a bold statement. If you are not making self-sacrificing compromises on a regular basis, you are not loving the way you should. I think of Ephesians 5. When Christians are taught to submit to one another, we're familiar with with this idea of submitting our will to God and doing what he wants in our lives, but are we willing to submit our will to our brothers and sisters around us? Be willing to just be wrong and not get our way. Love does not seek its own. And if you think about it in the Corinthian church, lawsuits, they were seeking their own. Sexual immorality, they were seeking their own. This is all fueled by pride. Love is not provoked. In 2014, I should not be laughing. In 2014, Colin Nathaniel Scott decided he was going to take a trip to Yellowstone National Park. And he saw this body of liquid and decided he wanted to take a bath. And so he jumps in there, and his body was never recovered because that is not water, it is sulfuric acid burning at over 200 degrees. This is not good. Why do I bring that up? Because this word provoked is their Greek word for acid. Paul is saying love is not acidic. What does acid do? It destroys. It breaks down, it melts, and it tears apart. Are you the kind of person who tear people down, tears people down, breaks them down? You don't build them up. But when people around you, they feel like you're pouring a vat of acid on them, that's not good. You have to be easy to get along with. You can't be torturing people. This, yes, we're supposed to suffer long, but that doesn't give you the right to make people suffer. Think about other people before yourself. Be a likable person. That is love creates a toxic environment. That's what acid does. When you walk around with your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you create a toxic environment? Of course, I started studying this, and I started thinking of all those people. Yeah, I know people like that, but then I started to think about myself. There's something that I'm really bad at, or really good at, depending on how you look at it. Whenever I'm in conversations with people, I'm always wanting to challenge something someone says. I want to debate. I want to argue. Oh, are you sure? What does 2 Timothy 2 say about this? Verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient. 
I know this was written to a young evangelist, Timothy, but this is a general truth. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. You think people want to spend a lot of time without, uh, around James when I'm sitting there challenging and debating everything they say? I know I'm not the only one who's done this. That creates a toxic environment. And that's not love. Love thinks no evil. This is another challenging phrase that Paul used here. This word thinks means to take inventory or to keep record. And that word evil means wrongdoing or an offense. Love does not keep record of an offense. Now what do we do when we keep a record? We take out our cell phones and we record a video, right? We record a video. I was not recording just now. We record a video. Why? So that we can watch it later. When we're taking record of our brother's offenses towards us, we're just waiting for the opportunity to pull them, back, pull them out and use it out against them. We start collecting these things and we put them in a bag and then guess what? We get in a conversation, we take that bag and we dump it on our brothers. This is what you've done to me. Well, that doesn't work out very well for us when their bag's bigger than ours. But that is not love. Love does not take inventory of our brother's wrongdoings or offenses toward us. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. This word rejoice means to celebrate, or the root word of joy, in iniquity. It's an interesting word here for iniquity. It's different than wrongdoing or evil because they use this word iniquity in their legal system. That's the context. And it makes sense because they were in the legal system with one another. These Corinthians were trying to enforce the law on one another, taking each other to court. That's what this is referring to. Love is not happy to enforce the law on brethren. Let me explain to you an example. Let's say Mario gets up and preaches a sermon and he says something wrong. He messed up. Do I sit there and go, yes. I get to walk up to him after church and say, well, Mario, you know what you did? And I get to be right and he gets to be wrong. We don't rejoice in those things. When our brother messes up, we should suffer with him. And we should help him, help to pick him back up. And those things are rooted in pride. Because when other people mess up, it makes us look better, doesn't it? Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in truth. Find it interesting, this word rejoices is a different Greek word than the other word rejoices. In fact, this word rejoices is a compound word that carried two different ideas. The first word in that compound word is a word that means a process of unifying or becoming complete or together. In other words, synchronization. And then the second word is joy. It's the same word as rejoice. A synchronization of joy in what? When founded in what? In truth. Now when we think of truth, generally we think of the gospel, objective truth, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. I want to talk to you about this for a second. Love synchronizes our joy when our focus is truth. Let me give you a couple examples. When James was, when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I started spending time with my brothers and sisters, Thomas and Samantha. And you know what I had zero interest in before I started hanging out with them? Computers. <laughs> I started spending time with them 
and I began to be interested in computers. Fast forward a little bit. Here's another example. I moved back to Houston from Harlingen, Texas, and I move in with uh, my very good friends and cousins, Jonathan and Zoe. I enjoyed the time I got to spend with them. You know what I didn't do before I went and stayed with them? Go to the gym. I started spending time with them. I grew closer with them. And you know what I started doing? I started going to the gym. Because we spent time together and our focus was truth, and so we began finding joy in the same things. Now, I've since moved out of their house and asked me what I don't do very often. Love rejoices in truth. Love synchronizes our joy when our focus is truth. And here's a, a personal example, something that might relate with more people. I turned 18, began to start my process into adulthood, started growing up, and I started finding joys in life that were not good. I began to find joy in things of this world and sinful things because Jesus was taken off of that top shelf in my life. My focus was not truth. I found my way to the brothers and sisters here, and it wasn't immediate, but in short order, they encouraged me to put Jesus back on top in my life. And then I began to find joy in the same things y'all do and did. And to this day, some of my favorite things, the things that bring me the most joy are worshiping with the people in this room. Our family game nights on Friday nights and our fellowship lunches in the back. I love those things. Love brings us closer and brings us together when our focus is truth. I think of COVID. It's something that's divisive and that tears people apart. But our focus got back on the truth and we were stronger together. We found joy in being together and the doing the same things. That is love. And I want you to know I love each and every one of y'all. Love bears all things. This is a roof. That word bears is the Greek word for roof. What does a roof do? It covers a house. It protects a house. You know, it protects the house from rain, from lightning, from, in our, course, in our case, acorns. <laughs> it protects the house. That's what a roof does. Love says, I got you covered. Are we willing to take a beating to protect our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to experience pain to protect our brothers and, and sisters? Do we have them covered? That is love. I need to speed this up. This is an unloving person because it does not protect that house. Love believes all things. This carries the idea of trust. Love is trusting even when it's hard to trust. You know, that's what Paul was teaching here. And that's hard because sometimes this world carries the idea or gives us the idea that we can lose people's trust. What does Paul say? Love continues trusting. We, do, we have these things that we did when we were young, trust falls. We would stand here and we'd fall backwards and we'd expect the person behind us to catch us. And sometimes we'd hit the ground. But then we'd get back up and we'd do it again. Love is continual trust. In our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll give a caveat. If we have a brother or sister that goes out and commits some sort of assault that is not right, maybe they're not going to be our go-to babysitter. That's the truth. 
But love is trusting, even when it's hard to trust. Love hopes all things. This word hopes carries the idea of an expectation. Love has high expectations for our brothers and sisters. Love holds each other accountable. Sometimes love looks like, love looks like correction or rebuke. I'm doing this because I love you, because I want to see you in heaven. Now, there's a responsibility on both ends because sometimes someone can rebuke us and then we can get our feelings hurt because of our pride. We don't like being told we're wrong. And then guess what? That's an injury in the body of Christ. It starts to tear people apart. But realize that brothers and sisters are doing this because they love you and they're your friend. Last week's topic was resistance training where we read Proverbs 27 and 6. It says, faithful words, uh, excuse me, faithful are the wounds of a friend. When a friend hurts you by something they say because they're trying to build you up or correct you, it's because they love you. We need to realize that, and we need to be loving enough to do that. Love endures all things. When you think of this word endurance, you think of carrying a weight. You know, Jesus, this isn't Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ carried the weight of a cross. He carried the weight of sin. He carried... The pain, he endured the cross. He endured pain for us. I had a pair of blue jeans a while back. Split them down the back. But I wanted to get as much life out of them as I could before I threw them away. But it got to the point where they were hanging on by one thread. And that thread was enduring a lot. <laughs> it was. The thread that ties everything together can hold a lot of weight. And that's love. Love is you being willing to hold up the last beam that is keeping the whole house from crumbling. Are you willing to hold that kind of weight? You love your brethren. You start healing those fractures and those injuries. You start holding people up. Love never fails. It will not vanish away. Love will never fail you. You know, love is eternal. What's so special about love? Colossians 3.14, but, uh, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You ask what Christianity is about. Love. Love is the glue that binds us together, that holds us together, because there are divisive things. There are things of this world. There's pride. There are things that are constantly trying to rip us apart and divide, divide us and damage the body of Christ. But love holds us together. And love is perfect. And love is eternal. Love will not fail. But people will fail to love. And that's why we have injuries. Really, the sermon was supposed to be on Matthew 18, but I got caught up in 1 Corinthians 13. But I want to run through this with you. The concepts taught in 1 Corinthians 13, I believe, are repeated here in Matthew 18. This idea of humility, this idea of, you know, loving each other and forgiving one another and submitting to one another, those ideas were, caught, were taught over and over in 1 Corinthians 13, and that's how we avoid those injuries and heal those injuries. Well, Matthew 18 talks about those same things. We'll start here in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he has sinned or committed an offense against you, you go and you talk to him and you reconcile. 
with the same mindset of 1 Corinthians 13. This is how you put that love into action. Now, love needs to be used as a preventative first so that we don't have stress fractures. If we're walking in love the way we ought to, love will never fail if we're all loving the way we should, but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes we have to reconcile with a brother. But this concept of love still applies. Let me talk to you for a minute about the, the mindset of Matthew 18. Uh, Proverbs 18, 19 says, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. Whenever we've already slipped and offended a brother, it's harder to win than if we would have just been using love in the first place. So we need to remember that, and that's very important. So this mindset of Matthew 18, Jesus wrote in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught humility. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, taught humility because the Corinthians were filled with pride. And we need to learn from this. We need to have the mindset of humility. Verse 9, Jesus said, If your eye causes you to sin, plug it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. He talked about the seriousness of sin. And that needs to play into our mindset as well. Verse 12 and 13, he talked about the hundred sheep and there was one sheep that went astray. But that one sheep was restored and it was rejoiced over. It, was, it didn't rejoice because we got the chance to go fix that brother or that sheep. It was the rejoicing came from that sheep being saved. And we need to have that in our mindset. Verse 22, this, uh, before this Peter asked, if a brother is offending me over and over, how many times do I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus said, forgive even when it's hard to forgive. This is the mindset of Matthew 18. And then I have a pretty tragic story for you. There was a master and there was a servant. And this servant owed his master, I think it was 10,000 shekels. And the master went to collect what was owed to him by that servant. And the servant said, I don't have 10,000 shekels. I don't have it. And the master said, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to sell you and to sell your family and all these things so that I can get what I am due. But then the, the servant began to beg and to plead with this master, and the master felt compassion, and the master forgave him of his debt. The master forgave him. And then the servant went out this forgiven servant went to one of his fellow servants after he had already been forgiven, and he said, hey, fellow servant, you owe me a hundred denarii. Pay me what you owe. And the other servant said, I don't have a hundred denarii. I, I can't pay you. And you know what this forgiven servant did to his fellow servant? He grabbed him by the throat, and he would not forgive his fellow servant after he's already been forgiven. Brothers and sisters, we've been forgiven by God and we can't forgive each other. We're hurting His body. We're injuring the church. It's a tragedy. This is the mindset of Matthew 18. We need to be forgiven. The master heard about what the servant had done and he was angry, delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, to each of you from his heart, 
if you do not forgive his brother his trespasses. If we don't forgive one another, the way 1 Corinthians 13 and Matthew 18 tells us to forgive, God will not forgive us. This is serious stuff. Love is not perfected unless it is practiced by both parties. Love will never fail. Love will always work. But sometimes, and I'll say this is rare, but sometimes you can be doing everything right and loving the way you should, but stress fractures will still happen because the other party is not loving the way they ought to. The other party is not humble and forgiving the way they ought to. And I want to remind you of Romans 12. Uh, when uh, it was written, As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Don't let it be you that tears apart the body of Christ. But you be the one that practices love and to start mending that body as best as you can. The rest of Matthew 18 goes like this. You know, you're supposed to go to a brother and try to restore that brother, but if he will not hear you, take one or two more. And if they will not hear the mouth of two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, but to the Jews, the heathens and the tax collectors were someone they did not associate with. They distanced themselves from. And this is a tragedy when it gets to this point. But when you have an unrepentant brother or sister, someone that is puffed up with pride, someone who does not forgive, someone who is not humble, and they just will not change, sometimes to avoid injury in the church, the viruses causing it to get sick must be removed. And it's already sad when this happens. But all of that can be avoided if we stop these stress fractures while they're small, if we, use pro, if we use love as a preventative tool to keep even stress fractures from happening, and then when these stress fractures happen, we use love to heal the stress fractures so that it doesn't grow and grow and grow, and then the 30 years of labor that we've put into building this congregation gets split into two because we aren't loving each other. Love is important. This is how we avoid injury. This is how we repair injury. We need this church here in Conroe, Texas. The people out there need this church here. And if you take nothing else from the lesson this morning, I want you to remember these two things. Loved sinners, love. You are loved by God. You need to love one another. Forgiven sinners, Forgive. Don't be that forgiven servant that goes out and grabs his brother by the throat. Forgive one another. I don't care how bad it hurts you. You want to be forgiven by God. I'll leave you with these two scriptures. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Let me ask you this, this morning... It's, if at some point during this lesson you have thought of a brother that you really need to reconcile with or you thought of a sister that they've hurt your feelings or you've hurt them and you're not getting along the way you should, why are you here? Why have you not reconciled first? Because I'm telling you, 
you're making those stress fractures worse the longer you go without reconciling. Finally, John 13, 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the stamp that makes us a follower of Jesus, is our love. When people look at you in your life, do they see pride and hatred and sin and unforgiveness towards your brethren or towards people of the world? You're not helping the body of Christ any. Love one another so that we can share Jesus and show Jesus to each other. That is how we can avoid injuries in the body of Christ. Let's heed the words of Paul. Let's heed the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. And let's start loving each other. Quit hating on each other. Quit hurting each other's feelings. Let's be willing to take a wrong every once in a while. Let's humble ourselves. And if you found yourself needing help with some of those things this morning, the church can help you. The church wants to pray for you. The church wants to restore you. We can help you with that if you'll come and take a seat on this front row as we stand and sing. Thanks for joining our sermon series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.